That's such a wonderful question, Erin. And I've never, ever been asked it. I've done hundreds of interviews and webinars and nobody's ever asked that. It's very simple. I feel obligated in the best sense of obligation to make sure that the next generation has its best shot. Hey, and welcome to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that brings you stories of positive impact from the world's leading innovators, activists, authors, and entrepreneurs. Each episode is a chance for you to listen to inspiring and impactful individuals talk about the positive impact they've made and how they made it. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital solar power classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. To those of you returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. It's listeners like you that inspire us to share more impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome and inspiring guest list we have lined up for you. And thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And today on the show, I'm very lucky and grateful to be here with Marianne Wolf, one of my all-time favorite authors. And Marianne is doing some important and impressive work in terms of keeping humanity a literate reading species. And I feel very lucky to be sitting with you today. Just a little bit of information about Marianne, if I may. So she's got, she's author of six books, I believe. It's pissed poor if you count the edited ones, but let's do. <laughs> so I'm going to say six books. Uh, yeah. I've seen lists of four, lists of six. Two of them are my absolute favorites. So Proust and the Squid mm -hmm. and Reader Come Home. She's mm -hmm. also published over 160 publications, which is mm -hmm. deeply impressive. Um, I understand you have a PhD from Harvard where you began your work in cognitive neuroscience and uh, psycholinguistics on the brain, language, and dyslexia. Lovely. Designed the, Ra the RAVO uh, reading intervention for students with dyslexia. And you're the co-founder of Curious Learning as well. Mm -hmm as well as a professor, and I'm probably missing a few items on your uh, very impressive CV. <laughs> doesn't matter, doesn't matter. I'm, the, the thing that you won't say and that I always tell my children, uh, I'm a farmer of children. I'm a woman of letters in both meanings and a farmer of children, so. Well, I'm, I'm actually happy you bring up the, the children part of this. Mm -hmm. And that is because when I look at the work that you've done, and when I look at your CV, I, I understand some of your inspiration as it relates mm. to your son, who I, who I understand has mm. dyslexia. Yeah. But it seems to me that the rate at which you work and publish mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and essentially design interventions, mm -hmm. it's as if you're trying to compete against the rate at which technology is creating this negative impact. Mm. And I'm wondering if someone, you know, at your age, at the yeah. stage of your career, who still is working as deeply and quickly okay. as young hustling startups, where, <laughs> where, where do you find this, this drive and passion and enthusiasm to uh, crank this much out? That's such a wonderful question, Aaron. 
and I've never, ever been asked it. I've done hundreds of interviews and webinars and nobody's ever asked that. It's very simple. I feel obligated in the best sense of obligation to make sure that the next generation has its best shot. And so that's where the farmer of children comes in. And um, I have twin loves. I, and and it, it's not, it's, it's very simple. I, I love language, I love words, and I love children. And I want to be sure that every child in every country, that's where Curious Learning came from, the Global Literacy Group, um, the Dyslexia Group, that everyone who struggles um, and everyone who doesn't struggle understands that they can become something they never imagined because reading will give them a vehicle like we have never ever yet invented. Um, and that's not to say in opposition to technology, and we'll talk about that. We will. But it is the case that access to literacy in the fullest sense, and mm -hmm. by that I, of course, mean a proficient, deep reading brain. I want that for our children, for our next generation. I want it for our world. And um, I cannot even go on vacations without half of the day feeling that I'm doing something about that. Then I have a virtuous afternoon. <laughs> That's but, all right. You know, I, I, it's, you know, work hard and play hard. Um, of course, my, my version of play is so much more sedentary these days as we all are experiencing truly twin pandemics uh, mm -hmm. and dealing with both so we really are and actually on that note how are you doing during this period of time have, have you found it's impacted you personally your work very it was very hard um i literally was um competing with george clooney and up in the air in terms of how many trips that i could make in a month to give lectures around the country, but also uh, around the world. I feel very obligated to, um, to work with people who are doing this kind of work in, at various levels. So I was recent, well, goodness, in the fall, I, I was in a literary festival in Italy where I was with Alberto Mangel, really talking about the topics we're talking about, the future of reading and what that means. And then I was in Berlin, um, which was the anniversary, the, uh, the, the anniversary of the falling of the wall. And so they have a conference called Falling Walls. And for me, they wanted to have me talk about, you know, felling the wall of non-literacy. Mm -hmm. And then was the Vatican. That was my, that was my last trip in, you know, in mid-February. And um, that was about a compact that Pope Francis wants to make with the world on a complete new way of looking at education. And they are really 
serious. This is the Vatican's Academy for Social Science and the Academy for Sciences. And they want science and education to fuse, to make a whole new, if you will, respect and understanding of the essential core that knowledge gives children and how we must work together so that education is, it's not so much reformed as restored to its original place of what a generation does to the next. We pass on our best and how education has been uh, thwarted and, um, and divided and uh, in some ways diminished in our opinions of how teachers are formed, the formation of teachers, how they are respected, how they are remunerated, who goes into education, how do we support them, what do we do for the young. So this was, he calls it the new compact for education. And all of those things, and, you know, talking town halls, whatever I can do, that was what I did when I wasn't teaching at UCLA. And that was almost every other week. And then stop. So it was in the beginning a shock to the system that I had of constant, if you will, movement. But it was also an opportunity. And I think everyone is feeling that the best thing they can do as an antidote to the inevitable despair we feel about loss of life, especially when loss of life has been made and in some places is unnecessary because of poor comprehensive policies by our government and this is not a political statement. It's a statement of science. We did not do what we should have done from the start. And that's a despairing reality. The antidote is to say, what can we do? What can each of us do? And facing that, I was able, thanks to a lot of different people, to do podcasts like this or interviews or town halls with pediatricians like Dr. Renee Boynton Jarrett, who's an epidemiologist and who is, I think, the finest, the finest orator on implicit bias that I've ever I've ever heard. And she's able to show how inequities have led to not just financial inequities, but health and educational inequities. And so uh, working with people like Global Literacy Hub Resource Library, we are building as many, um, org I should say, we're organizing as many activities as we possibly could that are free, high quality, and online for parents and educators who have no resources or who, don't, who are bombarded with resources. Either way, this organizes what do you do from zero to five for this skill, for this precursor? What do you do for an early reader, let's say, to help them understand 
phoneme awareness. You know, what are the activities that come out of research that are evidence-based? And you can just link it. So I'm talking about a very positive aspect of technology. So we've done that from zero to adolescence, and it'll be an iterative process. And I, I will give you a link for um, your audience so that they can go onto this resource library. And so there's one thing after another of connecting people to give our best during this moment of time where we are in trouble. We are in trouble at so many levels. And part of the trouble, even though I am absolutely making resources online, or helping create an organizer for good resources. We can't be we can't be tethered to the screen all the time without repercussions. So this is the balancing act that humanity and I as a person am facing. You know, despondency, despair, and the antidote of finding, like Tolstoy said, what can you do that's in front of you? You do what is in front of you to do. That's what Tolstoy said, and I, I follow that. I love that. I think. I think for me, the, you know, we spoke about this briefly before, but so I read. I've read a few of your books. I've read. Uh, I mean, Proust and the Squid is one of my favorites, and right. then Reader Come Home. I don't think there's a more important book for people to be reading at the moment. I wish. I, I wish people understood that. Um, it's, it's not your typical bestseller, that's for sure, but it has insights that I hope people take to heart right now in this pandemic. When we're all, just as you and I are tethered, mm -hmm. you know, we go from one screen to the next all our days. And, uh, and I always, 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 I mean, behind every Zoom are books that I'm reading that, that moment, that day, that, or that period. I certainly don't read all of them every day, but they're outside my library. They're outside my bedroom table or my study. They're the ones that I have to have behind me, almost like friends to support me. And I want people to have that right now. I love that. I really do. And I think just what's so incredible about this is, so I'm reading your book. I'm reading, at this point, I was reading Reader Come Home. And I guess we started speaking about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the, the email thread and it says, the, the subject line is, I couldn't resist reaching out. And, you know, <laughs> I just, just decided I have, to, I have to speak with this incredible woman. <laughs> and, and specifically, we, I was reading in the chapter uh, or the letter dealing with global illiteracy. Mm -hmm. And it just amazes me that we live in this world where I could send you that email. Mm -hmm. And here we are a year later. It's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So thank it's, you. It's a completely different ability that we have that we didn't have in the 19th century. And, and we have to be very grateful for it. Not even in the 20th century, but um, did we have it the way we have now? And all the advantages and disadvantages, we must be wise with both of them. Whenever I tell people about your books and whenever I, I tell people to read your work, 
you know, you usually, you can't just make a book recommendation. You need to give someone a bit of an anchor. Otherwise you just sound like a, someone who's pontificating, you know, you should read this, yes. you should read that. Right. Um, and what I find I, I often say with, with your work is you, you mentioned something where you say, have you noticed how you're losing the ability to read deeply? Mm-hmm. And I find that whenever I'm referencing your work or whenever I'm telling someone they should, they should really take a moment to read Read or Come Home, that's really the context that I, I root that deeply in. Mm. From your experience, is that, is, how do you, like if you're recommending your work to someone, mm-hmm. what, what sort of thing do you anchor it in with? Um, it's very close to what you're saying. Um, I begin often by saying we've all developed a defense mechanism to deal with the bombardment of information mm-hmm. and that we have a natural instinct to take information and get it to some, 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 some place where we can handle it when it's too much for us. And that the defense strategy of our times is to take that information and to do one of two things, to skim it. So we think we know being in the know, having the illusion of knowledge and information. And the second is that because we're so bombarded, we often go to what I call the silos of the familiar. Mm-hmm. And we go in those silos and we get the information and we accept it. And then we move on to the next and the next. Both of those factors contributed to becoming a nation, uh, a world of skimmers. And when we skim, there are so many amazing things that we developed over the centuries that go missing. And I call it deep reading, but deep reading is a word that that is really to describe a multitude of very important cognitive and language and feeling processes that 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 we would be the less as humans if we lose. And so it's the experience of losing deep reading that I'm most worried about. My concerns about this new norm of the skimming reader, which is really very close to being almost a non-reader when it comes to connecting to the deep processes that we possess, the implications are profound. So when your question is, how do I interest people in my book? It's not about my book. It's about how do we interest people in developing their own intelligence, their own best thinking, and not to be content with a skim that literally misses beauty, misses the, the depths of language and meaning, misses complexity, misses our own ability to be critically analytic, misses our ability to leave our little selves, our egocentric spheres, and enter the perspective of another person 
whether we call that emotional empathy or cognitive empathy or both, it means we are broadening the repertoire that we possess as individuals and we are expanding to have the worlds of others move outside ourselves. And the implications for losing beauty, complexity, critical analysis, perspective taking, are that we also lose, if we lose those, those are the preparatory aspects to going deeper still. And that's the, that, that special quality that reading can occasionally give us, which is the jumping off the vehicle, the diving board, the place where we can actually propel ourselves to think for ourselves in a new way. That's whether we call it the contemplative or reflective mode. It's the place where we can go, which I, I sometimes call the home, the reading home, the sanctuary, where we can, we, we are no longer dependent or content with others' thoughts. We are challenged by perspectives of others into analyzing ourselves, analyzing where we are. And that is what makes us able to be not just a better individual, but a better member of society. Who will say, wait, pause. We can't just accept something because it's in our familiar silo. We have to do better. We have to think better. So it's, you know, I, I, I love the letters in my book, some more than others. It's just like having children. You, you love them all, but you love something different about each one. Well, what, what I loved about my book most was a letter four and letter nine. And it was an exploration that I made, well, basically an experiment on myself to see whether I had lost some of my own capacity for deep reading. And the humility that is required when you see that you who write or talk about deep reading actually are a victim too, or at least uh, an example. I shouldn't say victim, an one more example. So chapter four was my rude awakening and chapter or letter, they aren't chapters in any normal sense. The letter nine, the letter nine goes back to your question, why should people read this? They should read it because it is about the highest principles of being an ascension, cognitive, feeling human. And letter nine is my, my plea not to lose that. So that's, you know, I don't say all of that to people, but that's what I want them to know. It is really about changing humanity ultimately which is and i don't even want to sound so grand but if we become non-readers if we all become skimmers who don't do anything but twitter we we will 
have a recipe for a, a lamed democracy. I mean, something that resonates with me in terms of what you're describing here is what Neil Postman has to say about yes. Aldous Huxley and George Orwell. Yeah. He says, you know, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there'd be no reason to ban a book for there'd be no one who wanted to read one. Yeah. And when we look, and you address this so beautifully when you mm. talk about, we're reading a ton. I mean, we're consuming gigabytes of information. Each right, day, right. But not deeply. And then I love how you talk about, you know, mm. Kurt Vonnegut comparing the role of an artist in society to that of a canary in a coal mine mm -hmm. um, in terms of alerting us in the presence of danger. And speaking to you and speaking to uh, one of my academic supervisors, a, an amazing author named Wade Davis, he talks about how he's an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. um, I heard his name. Talking about how pe the, the industry, the, the, mm -hmm. the industry is actually placing pressure on you to write mm -hmm. shorter books because people Absolutely. don't want to read longer ones. And absolutely. That is a that is danger. That is problematic. That is absolutely the fourth part of what I call my digital chain. That you know, it begins with how much we have to read changes how we read, and as we begin to, uh, to change our mode of reading to become much more skimmers of information, that in turn changes what we read. And as what we read becomes narrowed, really, paradoxically, instead of all this huge amount of information, we are actually being restricted, in, sometimes by the algorithms that are based on our interest from companies. But that then changes what is written. And that's where the, the, you know, the publishers are are really changing their requirements of authors. And it's not just uh, novelists, it's also science journals. And everyone is after the, the less dense, shorter, get me the information. And it truncates the kind of process we go through when we read the longer text that makes us think about it. And that gives us um, the, the, the pieces of complexity that go missing when we have the, the Twitter-like, less dense, less complicated versions that publishers are actually encouraging. Now, the last part of my digital chain hypothesis is when all those four things happen, the purpose of reading insidiously changes. And that would be such a loss. It really would. Now, <laughs> I'm so enthralled in what you're saying that I have not yet introduced you or the podcast. So it's thanks <laughs> for that. So there's a few areas that I still want to delve quite deeply into. Um, I definitely want to make sure that we can get into your role in, in global literacy and your work in Eastern Africa mm -hmm. uh, with Curious Learning. But before, before we get there, I want to talk mm -hmm. about the current state of America. Um, I, I want to talk about what you call the Maginot Line. I want to talk about essentially what's happening with fourth grade education yes. and, and their literacy. But before we get there, mm -hmm. before we get there, 
I want to understand one, what got you hooked on researching dyslexia more deeply? Mm-hmm. And two, and, I, and then I'm going to be quiet. The second, <laughs> I think a lot of people are not aware about the magic of reading. And when I say the magic, I mean the fact that we should not read as a species that we have mm-hmm. invented. Yes. It. yes. And w- when I read your work, you, you mm-hmm. explained it better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Could you explain to us just how it is that we do mm-hmm. the complex activity of reading and deriving mm-hmm. meaning from, from artificial mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is truly a good story, isn't it? I mean, I love, I love stories. And who would have thought that one of the great stories is how the human being invented something that changed its own brain. And that's what happened. So it begins with this, wonderful insight that I had that is so simple. And it did begin the book, Roost in the Squid. The idea after I was just doing all this research was like what one of Piagetti's simple, the simple thoughts can explain the most complexity. And the simple thought was the brain wasn't meant to read. It absolutely has not a single gene It doesn't have a single region or spot, locus, that's for reading, nothing, zip. So how in the world did that happen? Well, what the brain does have is the capacity to rearrange its parts that are genetically programmed. Now, language, is a genetic aspect. It's a gift. It's a contribution. Vision. We human beings have these genetic programs and the baby is born and hears words and learns to speak. Just not the way reading works. What reading is, is an invention that came out of the most primitive way of making a symbol represent a concept, pictures. But then it got ever more complicated. And so the brain had to change itself. It first had to make new connections between the visual areas and the language and the concept areas. So you have this very basic circuit that is part of who we are as symbol makers, but now symbolization was taking a new direction. And to make that symbol much more automatic, it began, you got, so that you got these connections that were first really slow, they learned to become automatic. And they could do that because of something very interesting about the visual system. The visual system immediately can make a representation of certain things so that we survive. Um, The letter is actually using the same areas that we used to look at a track and say danger or at a berry and say food. So we learn we use the same automatic, if you will, networks that our reflexes gave us or or we learned to survive and reading built on those early circuits. Now, the amazing thing about reading though, 
two amazing things. One, it shows us, human beings, human neuroscientists, how the brain learns anything new. It does it by reorganizing and making new networks, and those networks become cumulative, and they begin to expand. So this very primitive network that was reading that is what a five-year-old or a six-year-old uses, put the visual system together with the, the language system. Here's where I'm going to go more complex than you asked. It will depend on. on the writing system how much that network has to expand or where it expands. So that if we're talking about that first Egyptian hieroglyph and Sumerian system, probably the Egyptians we now think actually were before the Sumerians, it was so basic. You know, the picture, the concept, the word. But we got really interesting as a species. We figured out the alphabetic principle. And it took about 2,000 years to move from those early writing systems that were more pictographic, but they were coming closer and closer to what we now know of as a syllabary or a logosyllabary or an alphabet. But it took a very long time to get the concept that the words we use, which stand for things and ideas, those words are made of sounds and that each sound can be represented by a symbol. Now the Greeks and the Phoen the Greeks used the Phoenicians and the Phoenicians undoubtedly were influenced by an early Semitic abjab. You know, that gets too complex. But the Greeks went into this almost perfectionistic mode and made an almost perfect alphabet. Now, thud didn't get used for years, centuries. This is centuries before we get down to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And you remember, Socrates didn't want us to read. He said we would have a recipe for forgetting, yep. not for memory. So this beautiful story is that historically, we took a long time to emerge in different writing systems, but especially the alphabet. But that actually is recapitulated in us, each child. The child begins with something really simple. Just get the language, the word, the concept, and, and the visual system together. It still takes a very big cognitive leap to think that words have sounds. Now, this is where teachers around the world go wrong. If they actually understood that reading brain, they would understand that their methods have to go after the child realizing words are made of sounds and letters represent sounds. That is really cognitively complex. Like I said, 2,000 years to get there, 2,000 days we give the kids, okay? 2,000 days to get those concepts in order. Now, that's 
the circuit number one, from that point on, it gets to be one of the most beautifully elaborated sets of networks the human mind has ever had. Because it begins after it gets automatic. After that early circuit gets automatic, it begins to have time to connect to the background knowledge the person has. So we make analogy, oh, this is about a dog. I know a lot about dogs. I know nothing about dogs. We connect what we know to that text. Now, over time, our background knowledge is expanding. The text is becoming more and more difficult. It, this interaction, this analogical kind of thinking leads us to be able to make inferences, to make deductions. We, we begin to be by fourth grade, Sher little Sherlock Holmes or little Miss Marples, you know, finding clues and inferring. And all along the way, and this is from infancy on, reading is allowing us to understand what another person is. Who, my gosh, what does it mean to be a Native American member of the Creek tribe during the Veil of Tears? What, the trail of tears, what, what was it like? Well, how can we ever understand that without leaving our perspective? That's what reading does. Reading takes us out of our world and that now builds connections to affect, to the entire emotional system. So here we start with language and vision and a little concept here or there. We move, those concepts start growing and growing. And now we're adding not just all of those, but we're adding what words mean, how they function, what, what their parts are, how there are nuances, how there are layers of meaning. And now all that's connected to affect. So we've got four systems. And then the more expert we are, our motor systems are actually getting involved. So I, I use the example Anna Karenina, my favorite, one of my favorite novels. When she leaps with her red bag on the tracks to commit suicide, our leg muscles move. <laughs> I mean, not physically, but physiologically in the motor system, those, literally those neurons that we would have used for leaping are being activated. So by the time we are expert readers, that brain is using extraordinary amounts that never were planned to be connected. So the story of the reading brain is a two, two dual one, the history of it all, and then the individual development of it all. The brain of a literate person has changed from a non-literate does not mean that the non-literate can't have extraordinary amounts of intelligence. Look at Socrates. This is not the argument. The argument is that we have a different brain that can handle information, build information, and transform it. And here's where it gets really beautiful. That expert, deep reader, is able to transform that information into knowledge 
that's consolidated in memory. Just as history uses writing to pass it on because it's consolidated, the brain consolidates information that becomes knowledge that then becomes the next basis for whatever is read again, over and over. It's cumulative. It's a, as Alberto Mangel calls it, the geometric progression of the reader. And it's beautiful. And it's physiological and it's philosophical and it's pedagogical. It's, it's a great story. <laughs> that so, is a great story. That's the story. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, it's, it's funny that you mention Alberto at this stage in the story because, you know, we're talking about a very long story, obviously. And I love how in, um, in the history of reading, he talks about how in the 12th century, um, women well, and men, men and women, but actually had to narrate all their books to ensure that women were not reading lewd and inappropriate content. <laughs> Uh, as a decree by the by the church, which is just interesting in the sense of being a society that were actually narrating and, and subsequently deeply reading as they did narrate to those around them compared to the much more insular activity of, of reading these days. Yes. But that is going to put us down a really dangerous tangent and I'm concerned about yeah. our time. <laughs> so when, when I see you talk about reading and the excitement that you have and you, mm -hmm. and you feel... I know that we have the phonemic system. We have the whole language or the whole book learning system. Mm -hmm. What is going on in the US? What's happening with, with grade mm -hmm. four in particular and that Maginot line? Yeah, yeah I, I have to say, um, it takes an optimist <laughs> to be able to examine the history of reading methods and not become despondent because we have had these data that show that the early part of that reading brain circuit that I described has to be taught. Mm -hmm. It's not that children can't, um, in, in about 60% of our kids, and I want to use that figure, but Jean Chaw, my teacher at Harvard Reading Lab, used it, and it's probably still true. 60% of our kids, no matter what you do, what, how you teach, are going to be fine. They're going to learn. 40% is a number that is my responsibility. They need to have people teach the bottom of the ladder and not expect our children to jump and not, and, and not have the bottom rungs of the reading circuit instructed. So when I talk about how complex reading is to get the concept, there are philosophies of teaching that dictate that you do not teach the early rungs of the ladder. You do not teach letter sound correspondence rules. You do not make them automatic. The child will induce them on their own. They'll use their imagination. They'll use their inductive processes and they'll figure it out and that will be better for them. That's a philosophy that underlies what's called whole language and also, unfortunately, the people who are using the term balanced literacy are usually whole language plus a smattering of what is called phonics. Now, even though phonics is developing those early 
exposures, and here I'm going to use a word that's more from neuroscience that I want everyone to know. When, when people talk about practice and drill, and they often are using it in a derogatory sense. And I want them to eliminate that semantic connotation. The brains of 40% of our children, almost every dyslexic child, almost every struggling reader, needs multiple exposures to the patterns that connect letters and sounds. They also, for a lot of, a lot of the kids, have never had a real awareness of the phonemes, the smallest sounds. And so putting together a phoneme and a letter isn't making as much sense, if you will, because they don't have that awareness. So the phonics approach is basically really developing the first circuit. Now, the horror for me is that they, both groups, are doing something wonderful but each of them is doing something that should be integrated, not separated. So no balanced literacy or whole language person should be doing just a smattering of phonics. You should be systematic. You should be explicit about learning letters, representations of phonemes, awareness, putting them together, learning how to blend and integrate all of that, and making multiple exposures. An average dyslexic individual, instead of let's say 10 or 12 or even 20 uh, times seeing something, can need 100. And they will, like my own son. I am proof of that, yes. You are proof of that, you know, my son knows. And just as a sidebar, I was working on dyslexia before my son was born. Okay. I, think, I think the reality is that you have to be systematic. You have to go over and over and over this. And people have said, oh, no drill. That's not drill. It's giving multiple exposures. And in as many creative ways as we can, but to make sure you get that represented. That does not mean you don't have wonderful access to books and to vocabulary and to learning how words work. That is so beautifully essential. So my, my tack, my tackle on the, on the field is that this binary war was not only unnecessary, it was destructive, but especially for those who only used balanced literacy or whole language and assume the kids would induce it. If I had to choose one, I would of course choose the one that's systematic phonics in the beginning and hope to he high heavens that the, the language environment will then allow them to apply it and do all this great work. But the ideal is to follow the reading brain, to be working on all of those parts, but each of them systematically. Now, the fourth grade, my imaginal line, is one of the hardest things that I've had to face in education. And again, Jean Shaw told me this years ago, that fourth grade is what she used to call it, like the hole in education that kids fell into. 
because by fourth grade, a teacher thinks that child can read. They haven't been taught in their courses to teach reading. They don't know what to do if the child hasn't, isn't a fluent reader. The material is getting harder, and so the child has a teacher who can't identify, a teacher who doesn't know how to teach reading through no fault of their own, and the material getting harder and harder, and our children by this point who are not reading are developing or have already developed these behavioral, often even emotional sequelae that make them give up. They act out, they become clowns, they become um, the precursors of delinquency are beginning in fourth grade. And we, it is because our educational system has not worked in the first years to produce that fluent reader, but they haven't had a backup plan so that fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade teachers are prepared to know what to do when the child has slipped through those inevitable cracks. And there are cracks everywhere. Inequity is a part of the crack, but insufficient understanding of the reading brain or this, what I call the science, what people call the science of reading, insufficient understanding of that has exacerbated the amount of people who fail and then fourth grade are passed on, and then you get to eighth grade and you get what's called the National Assessment for Educational Progress. Fourth grade, eighth grade results right now, two thirds of our children in the United States are not proficient. Our children of color, fourth grade, more than half are not even at basic. We're not even talking about proficient, not at basic. When you talk about twin pandemics and our, uh, the, the consequences, one of the consequences is in fourth grade. They have not reached fourth grade. And I'm working with a man named Sean Robinson, who is uh, what he calls himself, Doc Dyslexia Dude. And he is um, an African-American who appears in this great suit. And he's after fourth grade African-American boys. Because when they fail then, that's amazing. They, he's going to get them. And I'm, you know, I'm all. I'm going to have to ask you for a connect there later yes, on. Yes, Sean Robinson. It's, he's, after, he's after those boys. And he's even done a special issue in reading and writing on that. Can I get uh, two more questions out of you? Absolutely. Right now, reading from my perspective, and I'm really interested in yours, but when I look around, when I look at my younger family members, when I look at some students who are, who are in grade four, grade five, family friends, I see them on Instagram. Absolutely. I see them developing self-consciousness through TikTok. Mm -hmm. um, I yeah. see them not reading, but not only not reading, not actually having the interest, the attention, Mm -hmm. to do those things. And then on top of that, when I look at TikTok and when I see Instagram, there, mm -hmm. is, there is instant gratification built right. in. I mean, there are dopamine fixes. The yes. world's smartest mm -hmm. engineers mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. the smartest yes. engineers on the planet are right. hired by Facebook to keep yeah. you on Facebook for five more minutes. That is That's right. 
That's right. So, so what? Well, is we're just where tobacco was. Exactly. You know, exactly. We're just. We're just. That's exactly where we are now. We know just as they knew what nicotine does. To we are doing the same thing in addiction and the change, the literal change of the nature of attention in our children. That that's exactly it. So. Right now, I have this discussion with a lot of, you know, really prominent educators. And th there's one group that say, kids should read books, ideally not on screens, um, ideally not using like a read-along technology. Mm -hmm. or for, and actually, you've spoken about this as well. Mm -hmm. And then there's another school that say, you know what, we are losing our behavior, our reading behavior, and we need mm -hmm. to start fighting fire with fire. And mm -hmm. we need to be developing technologies that motivate mm -hmm. reading and that make it actually competitive with mm -hmm. because it's, mm -hmm. it's we're competing for screen time mm -hmm. and i'd love to understand what is your a mm -hmm. view on that but b mm -hmm. in 10 years time what is your utopia of mm -hmm. a day in the life of a grade four reader okay I, um i'm going to actually use the philosopher nicholas of cusa who said centuries ago that when you have two contradicting truths, two, that the importance is to go outside them and to take a stance of what he called learned ignorance and try to figure out what is the best in both and to figure out how to integrate that. And so it is my stance of learned ignorance to hope to make in that ideal world a biliterate deep reading brain, one that can assess what is the purpose of the reading, what for that individual is the best medium to use for that purpose. And for the early childhood period, I really want to capitalize on the kinesthetic tactile connections with books for the young. I believe for the first 10 years especially, we should emphasize the concreteness of books as a way of helping us reach deep reading. And then simultaneously, never putting technology aside, but learning how to program and code and do all these things that complement these books, but that are being learned in, in, a, in a parallel path, if you will. And then somewhere around fourth grade, fifth grade, when we know the child is proficient at deep reading or the beginnings of deep reading, then we explicitly teach, how do you think immersively? How do you slow yourself down on the screen in order to allow time to allocate and not be automatically a skimmer, which we all are now on screens. I am a skimmer. I know what I am when I'm on the screen, but I'm conscious. But I can consciously slow myself down depending on the purpose. So I am working with technology experts right now on something called Rally Reader that I'm hoping will um, it's harnessing AI um, that will help the development of fluency and pleasure with um, something that a, a child, it's like a, 
um, a, a panel that goes over and allows you to read out, out loud, just as you, Aaron, are interested in that oral reading component. And then it will help you understand where you were or were not accurate and the speed. So it's not about getting faster and faster. It's getting fast enough. Mm. And that's a very yeah. important aspect. We, people who are mistaking, oh, I need this word per minute. This, what is fast enough to allocate to the deep reading processes of inference, critical analysis and empathy and allows time for insight of the own, the own thinking process. That's what I worry in technology is being lost right now for our country, a country of semi-readers, and even in, in the White House, someone who is probably a, a virtual non-reader who doesn't process information. And whether we are talking about an individual or many individuals, Twitter brain is the reduction of complexity of thought. No policy can ever have the complexity that an issue not only contains but requires of, of its citizenry should ever be conveyed by a Twitter. This is anathema to use the Greek. It is anathema to true thinking and true analysis and in my opinion, a true democracy where multiple perspectives are being able to be integrated in a policy. Twitter cannot integrate. And I have nothing against Twitter. Twitter has its own purposes and uses. It's every device has its own. Now you've said, what is the ideal? And I know my time is short. My ideal is to have deep reading at its at its most expansive and including all the aspects of, of technology that we will over time add to our repertoire. At the same time, we are preserving the best of what we know about deep reading at the present. So my ideal is the connection between preservation and expansion and knowing the purpose of whatever we're reading what medium is best for that individual and for some of our of our of our individuals especially some of our our our, our people with dyslexia i use technology because that is going to get me the most practice and the most immersion and interest for some of those individuals so there's an individual element in all of this preservation and expansion I love it. I, I, there's so many things I want to tell you right now. We're going to have oh. to spend more time, but we're between the Simbi Foundation that are building infrastructure and in refugee settlements, putting oh. down solar power classrooms, yes. and then working with the refugees to actually narrate their books into Simbi, the app. Fantastic. Those books are then narrated, and then the rest of the population can actually read along to locally relevant content in a locally relevant accent and to preserve those stories. Fantastic. And so when you're talking about expansion and preservation, I've just never heard yes. that put better. I know you need to go. And one, I would love to arrange a mm. part two with you. This has been just incredible, so thank you. <laughs> but my question for you mm. is, give us, give us a few books that you'd recommend 
um, we read right now? What's, what's topical, what's top of mind? Okay, um, I can just turn around. Resistors by Gish Jin is a fabulous novel about what I think everybody in the pandemic should be really thinking about. How do we harness our best in uh, an atmosphere that's extraordinarily dangerous and oppressive? So Resistors and Gish Jin. Um, here's, oh, here's a wonderful one. Um, biography of silence, not, not, this is not for everyone, but for people who really understand the importance of, of meditation. Um, Philip Davis, I have two of his books, one on George Eliot, but um, this is a really interesting one, Six Souls, Healthy Minds, How William James Can Save Your Life. This is a really interesting book for now, too. Um, there's a, a book that the last one I'll say is, it comes from a title from Flannery O'Connor, um, uh, How to Save Your Own Life, is actually a biography of Walker Percy, Thomas Merton, Flannery O'Connor, and Dorothy Day. And it's about the search for meaning through writing. And it's by, uh, um, his last name is L-E-L-I-E, but it's the life you save may be your own. It's, I am not a, one of these people who really, it's not, a, I, I've never read self-help books, but both of them seem to have that in their title, but they're both about the search for meaning and to live purposeful lives regardless. Uh, and here I will, end with this recommendation that almost nobody out there is going to read, but still I'm going to tell you, Philip Davis has an organization called The Reader, and this is the case studies of prisoners and others who are being read to. And I will just end with this quote. While, while Nelson Mandela was in prison, and this was being read to prisoners, one of the poems that he read over and over again was this, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And in the midst of two pandemics, leave it to Nelson Mandela's courage that just was not conquered after years of being in prison. We have a year and a half of being in prison. That's my estimation. Let us learn from those who search. Um, and reading gives us, without ever meeting them, um, our own, if you will, our own vehicle to become our own pilgrim and, and wayfarer towards meaning so and giving it away like you are Aaron awesome. giving it away that's what Simbi sounds like it really is giving meaning to many yeah it is Marianne it has been such a pleasure to speak with you thank you my pleasure too take care and be well and everyone who's listening to this be well and stay well
Thank you for listening to this episode of Impact in the 21st Century, which was sponsored by RBC. We're truly grateful for RBC's sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or co-worker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will help us invite more awesome guests to join the conversation surrounding positive impact. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please leave a comment or reach out on social media to let us know what you thought about today's episode. In the meantime, wishing you all the best, and I hope you join us for our next episode. Thank you.